Well, good morning and, and welcome, those of you in person, those on the patio, and those um, watching online to the wind tunnel of the eastern San Gabriel Valley, apparently. Um, hopefully, uh, we just got some palm fronds from our neighbor's palm tree in our yard, but other than that, no damage, so I'm ho hopeful that you um, didn't have any damage either from these winds, but it was, it was quite an experience. Um, but welcome this morning. You know, for <clears throat> 10 seasons, the... Um, <clears throat> reality show Undercover Boss has shown us what it's like for executives to go undercover at their organization as entry-level employees. Um, undercover Boss enables high-level managers to see the flaws within their organization that they'd never be able to see from the top of the org chart. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the premise for Undercover Boss is actually comes from a very ancient source. It goes back to numerous fables that have been told around the world in the ancient world about powerful leaders like kings and other kinds of leaders who would hide themselves among their subjects in order to be with them and better understand them. This motif is sometimes called the king incognito or the incognito king, though it's not always a king. And, and we see this theme in literature and film like in, in Shakespeare's Henry V or Aragorn in the Lord of the Rings trilogy or even in the more recent Marvel film, The Eternals. Well, as Christians, we believe that something kind of like this happened when Jesus entered in to our world. We believe that Jesus came to our world as incognito God. God himself hidden as one of us. To be with us. And ultimately to save us. The arrival of Jesus into our world was a surprising epiphany, a surprising revelation of God cloaked in unassuming human form. Well, we're in the third week of an eight-week series in Epiphany called Jesus Revealed. And in this series, we're looking at the eight I Am statements that Jesus made in the book of John. Each one of these eight statements reveals surprising insights, epiphanies about who Jesus is. And if we let them, these surprising insights can deepen our experience of worship as a church and as individual Christians. Two weeks ago, we started with the first I am statement from John chapter 6 when Jesus said, I am the bread of life. And then last Sunday, our parish associate, um, Andrea, talked about the second I am statement from John chapter 8, when Jesus said, I am the light of the world. And this morning, we're going to look at Jesus' third I am statement, also from the 8th chapter of John. But this third statement is different from the other seven. Each of the other I am statements is followed by a predicate. I am the bread of life, the light of the world, the resurrection, the vine. But today's I am statement is simply I am with no predicate. 
In fact, some Bible teachers don't include this statement with the other seven because it's so different. But I, I actually think that this I am statement that we're going to look at today is the foundation of the other seven statements. So today we're going to see four epiphanies, four surprising insights about Jesus that come from this third I am statement that we find in John chapter 8, verses 31 through 59. So let's pick it up in John chapter 8, beginning in verse 31. To the Jews who had believed in him, Jesus said, If you hold to my teaching, or some translations put it, abide in my word, you are really my disciples. Then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered Jesus, we are Abraham's descendants and have never been slaves of anyone. How can you say that we shall be set free? Jesus replied, very truly I tell you, everyone who sins is a slave to sin. Now a slave has no permanent place in the family, but a son belongs to it forever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know you are Abraham's descendants, yet you are looking for a way to kill me, because you have no room for my word. I am telling you what I have seen in the Father's presence, and you are doing what you have heard from your father. Abraham is our father, they answered. If you were Abraham's children, said Jesus... You would do what Abraham did. As it is, you are looking for a way to kill me, a man who has told you the truth that I heard from God. Abraham did not do such things. This part of John 8 is directed to the Jews who believed in Jesus. And I mentioned two weeks ago that John often uses this phrase, the Jews, to refer to the Jewish religious leaders of Jesus' day. It's not talking about all Jewish people everywhere. But these are the Jewish religious leaders who had professed faith in Jesus. They said they believed in Jesus. Yet as the chapter unfolds, clearly there's something missing in their faith that they say that they have. So James tell, or Jesus tells them that if they hold to his teaching or abide in his word, they will demonstrate that they are truly disciples, followers of Jesus. But because their belief in Jesus was shallow and fickle at this point, it had not yet blossomed into full, authentic Christian faith. In fact, in verse 37 of our reading, Jesus accuses them of having no place for Jesus' teaching or his word. In other words, they were not holding to his teaching or abiding in his word. They were doing the opposite. Jesus' teaching had found no home within them. They weren't abiding in his word. Only those who believe in Jesus and hold to his teaching are truly his followers. Anyone can say they believe. We learned from James back in the fall that even the demons have a kind of belief. 
But according to Jesus here in John 8, real belief, real faith, includes abiding in the teaching of Jesus. If we hold to his teaching, then we will know the truth, and that truth will set us free. Now, that phrase, the truth will set you free, is probably one of Jesus' most quoted sayings by other people. Politicians like to sprinkle this quote from Jesus in their speeches just to let everybody know that they're for truth and they're for freedom, whether or not they are or not. Uh, numerous universities have included these words of Jesus in their motto, including Caltech in Pasadena. These words of Jesus, the truth will set you free, was carved into the original building of the CIA headquarters. This last week I watched the Marvel, new Marvel movie, The Eternals, and the character Makari quoted these words of Jesus at the end of the film, the truth will set you them free. But when people quote John 8.32, they often ignore the context. You see, the freedom Jesus is speaking of is freedom from slavery to sin. It's not political freedom or religious freedom. It's not freedom of speech or freedom of association or freedom of the press. And we know this because of how these religious leaders responded to what Jesus said in verse 33. They protest that they have never been slaves to anyone, which if you read just a little of the New Testament or Old Testament, you know that's not true. The, the people of Israel have been enslaved by the Egyptians and then the Babylonians and then the Persians and then the Greeks and in the time of Jesus, they were enslaved to the Romans. But Jesus clarifies here that he's not talking about that kind of slavery, about political slavery or political freedom. He's talking about slavery to sin. Everyone who sins, says Jesus, is a slave to sin. And that pretty much includes everyone because according to the Bible, everyone sins. And Jesus then uses a metaphor of an ancient household or family. In the ancient Jewish family, slaves did not have permanent status within that family. Slaves could be sold or released or buy their freedom or banished, sent away. But in contrast to slaves, the son in a family is a permanent member of the family. Hear what Jesus is saying. These religious leaders, they were descendants of Abraham in the Old Testament. They were sons in Abraham's family, if you will. But they were also slaves to sin. And because they were slaves to their sin, their place in Abraham's family was not guaranteed, regardless of their bloodline, or their heritage, or who their ancestors were. Even though they were physical descendants of Abraham, they still needed to be set free from their sins to be part of Abraham's family. And only Jesus, God's sinless son, the only one not enslaved to sin, only he could make them a permanent member of Abraham's family. Only he could set them free. 
But instead of responding and trusting in Jesus, these religious leaders who started with faith, they double down on their claim that they're just fine without Jesus because they're Abraham's descendants. They don't think they need Jesus because of who their ancestors are, their heritage, their bloodline. It would be like saying, because I'm an American, I don't need Jesus to set me free from my sin. Or because I've been a, a part of Glenkirk since I was a baby, I don't need Jesus to set me free from my sin. Now this conversation keeps escalating. Skip down to verse 48. It says, these Jews, the ones who believed in Jesus at the beginning, answered Jesus, aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Their tune has changed. I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, now we know you are demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so did the prophets. Yet you say whoever obeys your word will never taste death? Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone Jesus, but he hid himself. Slipping away from the temple grounds. This conversation in John 8, it reads like a, a, a Facebook post or a Twitter thread that just has escalated into name-calling and insults. They accuse Jesus of being a Samaritan, not being fully Jesus, not truly being a part of Abraham's family. And then they go even further and say he's possessed by a demon itself. But Jesus brushes aside their insults. He tells them that Abraham, their ancestor, rejoiced at the thought of Jesus coming to the world. Back in Genesis, and we looked at this a couple of weeks ago, back in Genesis, God promised Abraham that one day God would replace the curse of sin with the blessing of salvation and would make that blessing available to all the peoples of the earth. And that descendant of Abraham who would do that is Jesus. He's the one. Abraham looked forward to the fulfillment of that 
promise with eager anticipation and joy, even if it was thousands of years in the future. And this enrages these religious leaders even more, which leads to the third I am statement of the book of John in verse 58, before Abraham was born, I am. The background to this third I am statement actually goes back to the Old Testament to the book of Exodus, when God called Moses to lead the people of Israel out of their slavery to Egypt. And Exodus chapter 3 says this, Moses says to God, suppose I go to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I tell them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. This is what you are to say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. The very next verse, verse 15 of Exodus 3, God reveals the name Yahweh to Moses. Now, in our Bible translations, the word Yahweh is usually translated with the word Lord in all capital letters. Whenever you see the word Lord in all capital letters, the Hebrew word there is the word Yahweh. Yahweh is a name based on the Hebrew verb Yahu, which is the Hebrew word for I am. Yahweh means I am. I am that I am. One Old Testament scholar says that Yahweh describes God as a being who exists in and of himself. He is neither dependent nor derivative of any other being. At all times and in all places, he is. No other being in the universe can make that claim. All other beings are contingent on someone else or something else. Except for Yahweh. I am that I am. You see, Jesus is making a clear and unambiguous claim here to be God himself. Not a God, not God in quotes, not God with a little g, not God-like, but the true and living God of the Old Testament. Jesus claims to be the great I am, Yahweh himself. He didn't merely exist before Abraham. He was the one Abraham worshipped. And this is why the religious leaders picked up stones to kill Jesus in verse 59, because in their mind, by invoking the words, I am, Jesus was committing blasphemy by claiming to be equal with God himself. Jesus claims to be God incognito, God hidden among us. So let's consider four epiphanies, four surprising insights about Jesus and then apply this to our experience of worship as a church. Here's the first epiphany. Jesus is different than any other religious leader. Jesus is different. He stands alone in a category all by himself. You know, the founders of the um, other world's main religions never made the claims Jesus made. Abraham and Moses in Judaism never claimed to be God. Siddhartha, also known as the Buddha, never claimed to be God. Muhammad never claimed to be God. 
There have been people who've claimed to be God. Consider a few of those. In the second century BC, a, a, a king named Antiochus IV, a Syrian king, he claimed to be God, but then he proved himself to be a violent tyrant who tortured people who wouldn't worship him. Or in 1955, Jim Jones, the founder of the People's Temple cult, he claimed to be God, but then he used that claim to lead more than 900 of his followers to commit suicide in mass. In 1987, a Ugandan warlord named Joseph Kony, he claimed to be God, but then he used that claim to abduct thousands of children and force them to fight as child soldiers in his army. These are the kinds of things that people who claim to be God often do. But Jesus stands alone. He claimed to be God like no other major religious leader. But then he lived a sinless, perfect life instead of exploiting that claim. He claimed to be God, but then he suffered with us, died for us, and then rose from the dead to prove that the claim was true. See, if it was untrue, Jesus was either an imposter or mentally ill. But if it was true, he stands in a category all by himself. He's unique. Here's the second epiphany. Jesus alone communicates saving truth about God. He alone communicates saving truth about God. There's a lot of truth that we can discover in our world. As the, the ancient African theologian Augustine put it, all truth is God's truth. All truth, no matter what its source, no matter who discovers it. If it's true, it's God's truth. God created us to discover truth through science and technology, reason and philosophy, personal experience and intuition. Calvin went so far to say that when we encounter truth, whatever the source of that truth, if we reject that truth, we're showing a lack of gratitude to God because God is the God of truth. Christians should be the first to rejoice at the discovery of new technologies to treat diseases and, and new technologies to enhance our life and new ways to lead organizations because all truth is God's truth, no matter who discovers it. But saving truth, the kind of truth that can bring us into a right relationship with God, that kind of truth comes from Jesus himself. And I want you to notice that Jesus says that this saving truth about God comes to those who hold to his teaching, who abide in his word. Knowing saving truth about God requires something from us. An investment in the process. We don't come to saving truth about God as impartial, detached observers. But we come to saving truth about God by moving towards Jesus in faith and beginning to live and keep His teachings, to abide in His Word. And as we do, we become more and more and more aware of the truth about God that is revealed through Jesus. Jesus alone can do that. 
Here's a third epiphany. Jesus alone can free us from our servitude to sin. He alone can set us free from our servitude to sin. If everyone who sins is a slave to sin, then we are all enslaved to sin. It is the human condition. We're enslaved to sin because of sin's penalty. The penalty for sin is death, physical death, and ultimately eternal separation from God after we die. Everyone is under a death sentence, enslaved to an outcome that they cannot change on their own. But we're also enslaved to sin's power in our lives. When we indulge in actions and dispositions that we know are wrong and displeasing to God, we become entangled in those things. When we steal, we develop an inclination to keep stealing. When we tell lies or post untruths on social media, we find ourselves entangled to lies and unable to distinguish truth from error. When we hate people, we become enslaved to that hate, unable to stop hating. No one can save themselves from this condition. No self-help book, no support group, no therapy session can free us from our enslavement to sin. Only Jesus can free us from our enslavement to sin. Finally, a fourth epiphany from these verses. Jesus alone can deliver us from the power of death. He alone can deliver us from the power of death. You know, many of the I am statements focus on eternal life. Bread of life. The way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the one who offers abundant life, eternal life. A restored relationship with God that begins right here and now in this life. And in verse 51 of chapter 8, Jesus says that whoever obeys his word, who he gives this gift of eternal life, they will never see death. Now that doesn't mean that Christians will never die. It means that even our physical death of our bodies cannot interrupt the eternal life that Jesus gives us when we trust in him. Eternal life may begin now, but it will continue on after we die. By calling himself the great I am, Jesus lays the foundation for the other seven I am statements in the book of John. As God himself among us, God incognito, Jesus is unique, and so he's uniquely able to reveal saving truth about God, to free us from our servitude to sin, and to deliver us from death. No one else can do what Jesus can do. Now, how does this apply to our worship as a church and as Christians? I've been trying to apply these teachings to our worship. Some people wonder what kind of worship most pleases God. Is it contemporary or traditional? Ancient or modern? Gospel or liturgical? Loud and joyful or quiet and reflective? Is God more pleased with pipe organs or drums? 
written prayers or extemporaneous prayers. Communion every week or communion once a month. And Christians argue about these things. And churches sometimes divide over these kinds of questions. And although I have my own personal preferences on all of those things, I think those questions focus on the wrong thing. In the Old Testament, the kind of worship that was pleasing to God was described as unblemished worship. Unblemished. And no matter what we bring in our worship, whether it's an orchestral rendition of the Passion of St. Matthew or contemporary praise song, what we bring in worship is blemished by our own sins. No matter what prayers we pray, no matter what gifts we give, what songs we sing, what sermons our pastors preach, because we are blemished by sin, what we bring in worship is blemished by sin. There's only been one act of worship that has been completely unblemished. One act of worship that has been fully and completely pleasing to God. And it wasn't contemporary or traditional, liturgical or free, modern or ancient. The one act of worship that was unblemished, fully pleasing to God, was Jesus offering himself as an act of worship, as the sacrifice for our sins when he offered himself to God the Father. Hebrews 9.14 says that this act of worship was unblemished to God and because of that the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse us from our blemishes, from our sins. Ephesians 5.2 says that Jesus gave himself as a fragrant and unblemished offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus, the Son of God, his worship of God the Father is the only act of worship that's been fully pleasing to God because Jesus was unblemished, sinless. And that's why when we worship God as Christians, we seek to worship through Jesus. Our worship together, whether it's in word or sacrament or prayer or giving or music or blessing, it joins in the worship God the Son has already started in his worship of the Father. So whether it's contemporary or traditional, ancient or modern, liturgical or gospel, worship that is pleasing to God is worship that is offered through Jesus. And so the more we know Jesus, the more we abide in his teaching, abide in his word, the great I am, fully human and fully God, the more we grow in our understanding and appreciation of what he has done, of his sacrifice for us, the more we do that, the more meaningful, true, biblical, and pleasing our own worship of God will become. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these words. 
And Lord, we want to be not the people at the beginning of this section who, who believed in Jesus but didn't have real faith. We want to be the kinds of people who, who keep his teaching, who abide in his word. And so we confess, Lord, that, that we need to be set free from our own sin, that we need the truth about God that only Jesus can give us. We confess that he alone has conquered death through his resurrection. And so all that we bring to you today are, are words of praise, our songs, our offerings, receiving the word, our, our community with each other, all that we bring to you today, God, we bring to you through Jesus, the great I am, the only one, God, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.